0: Colossians chapter 3, obviously a heavy morning to, as we are hearing from Jason, and everybody's up to date on the promotion of our brother, Mark Trotter. He's been promoted, praise the Lord, and so thankful that he's been healed, and he's not suffering anymore. He's very much at peace, and we give God glory. Knowing Mark the way that I knew him, I'm certain If there's anything that Mark thought we should do this morning, it would be Colossians chapter 3. If there was a book in the Word of God that he loved, it was Colossians. No doubt. Now, to my discredit, I don't believe that I can do it justice the way that he did, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God to give it my absolute best. In your notes, you see this, but a mort... Is a note that is played on a hunting horn signifying that the animal hunted has been killed now one of the things that i always i find interesting is is when you're studying to teach the word of god you you come across so many different things so many things that you have no history with no personal knowledge of like i didn't grow up with a hunting horn okay that, that wasn't that wasn't part of my experience growing up i, I didn 't hunt and and so i didn 't know what a mort was in that regard now, if you wanted to know anything about taking the fifteen South Decab from Misty Waters to the Decatur train station to take the train downtown to the Omni and get off at the omni stop and go up into the omni arena to watch Dominique Wilkins and the Hawks play the. Detroit Pistons. I'm your man. I can tell you all about that. I know that all too well. I did that quite a few times. I'll never forget. My friends and I went, and we had the the nosebleed seats up at the top, and we saw a few seats, like 11 rows behind the goal, and we snuck down, and three of us were sitting 11 rows back, and I, I, I played point guard at the time, and I'm watching Isaiah Thomas, and I'm like, wow. This guy is unbelievable, he was. Anyway, just letting you know, I can help you there. Now, I would imagine I'm not the only guy uh, who grew up knowing nothing about hunting horns, knowing nothing about amorts. Many of you are urbanites like myself, so that's out of our league, but I think we can get the concept. We can understand what this means, and and taking it a step further, from a spiritual perspective, We absolutely have to get this. We have to get this. We have to get this concept of the mort. Why? Because the first word that we encounter in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 is what? Mortify. Mort. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the suffix, I-F-Y, it means to make someone or something become. So with mort, clearly referring to death, we understand that Paul, listen, he was commanding us to make something become dead. That's the command. We are to make something become dead. Mortify therefore, so because of the first four verses that we looked at last week, make your members which are upon the earth to become dead. In other words, put to death, listen, the lustful predispositions of the flesh. We all have them. Put those things to death. These are the things that we all have a natural tendency to do. Every one of us. Initially, we see five natural tendencies that we must mortify, and, and I do stress we. Paul addressed this to the entire church at Colossae. This wasn't targeted at maybe a few here or a or, or few there. No, this was and this is to every believer in Jesus Christ I don't care who you are I don't care how you grew up you could have grown up going maybe you were homeschooled or or maybe you were very traditional and you went to a very traditional Christian school or maybe you were in a very traditional legalistic church and you wore long skirts and suit and ties I do not care regardless of who you are in the flesh Your natural tendency is to do these things. I don't care who you are. So Paul gave us five things to put to death. Now, I believe all five of them deal with lust, and I believe that I'll be able to make that point clear as we make our way through this, but the first one is fornication. This is sex outside of marriage, and adultery is in this family. And what you need to know is that, listen, fornication in and of itself is a whorish act. It's a whorish act. The word fornication here, it means tree. It's a whorish act. Notice the word Paul used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when talking about fornication. In verse 15 he said, "'Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid!' What? "'Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh?' Now, if you're in Colossians 3 and you look at verse 11, Paul tells us what? That Christ is all and in all. So if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, how then are you not associating him with the horish act of fornication? It's an up-close and personal exposure to that horish behavior. Now, there is an erroneous teaching that says if two people fornicate, in the biblical sense, that makes them automatically married. I don't agree with that. Because in Exodus 22, verses 16 through 17, if a man fornicated with a girl, he had to marry her unless her father disapproved. In other words, it was clear that the act of fornication did not mean marriage. There's more we could say on that. Now, By no means does that lessen the seriousness of this sin. It is very serious. You must know that sex outside of marriage is harsh and despised by God. I don't care what our culture says. I don't care about anything beyond what the Word of God says about it. God says it's harsh, and God says I hate it. That's it, plain and simple. Uncleanness. This is physical or moral impurity. The word uncleanness is linked with lust of the hearts, fornication here and other places, lasciviousness. Now, I get it, because I'm made of the same stuff you're made of. So I get the weakness of the flesh. My flesh is as weak as yours, but What I notice about the flesh is the flesh, what it does is, is when you cut it off or you kill something, it just pivots. It just pivots. So it's great that we are not physically fornicating or committing adultery, but how about a little pornography? How about that? Can we do that? Or how about a little flirting? Is that okay? Okay. I mean, yeah, you're, you're cutting me off. You, you, you won't give me any fornication. You won't give me any physical adultery, but, but what can you feed me? That's unclean. Listen, you must understand, I don't care how attractive you are, how nice and neat you look today, your flesh and my flesh has an insatiable appetite for uncleanness. Insatiable. Insatiable. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful with how we behave ourselves with someone else's spouse, how we think about them, how we deal with them. Everything starts with the best intentions until we realize how predisposed we are to defile that. Again, brothers and sisters, keep everything in the light. Nothing is hidden. We don't have some secret relationship, some secret code, some emotional affair that, we, that we're working, some dark thing like that. Keep it in the light. Keep it straight. Inordinate affection. This is a regular passion. This is going beyond the bounds of what God has ordained as proper. Homosexuality is an inordinate affection, and I do not care what the government or what society has to say about it. That's what God says about it. Romans 1 says it's not natural. Bestiality is an inordinate affection and many other things I shall not name. Evil concupiscence. Longing for what is forbidden or unlawful. This is hard to process, but we're talking about predatory behavior. We're talking about dark things like rape, and on and on. And finally, and certainly not least, covetousness. This is fraudulent behavior. Obviously, we associate this typically with money and possessions and things of that nature, which is correct, but... Covetousness is also associated with sexual lust. We do not covet our neighbor's house or our neighbor's wife. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul wrote about abstaining from fornication, in that context he said that we are not to defraud a brother in any matter. Do you understand that when you engage with another brother or sister, and fornication or some type of sexual impropriety, it is fraudulent. (laughs) It is spiritually fraudulent. It's spiritual extortion. So contextually, with where covetousness is placed, the focus is to abstain from, listen, desiring anyone that God has not given you That's idolatry. And it is as idolatrous as bowing down to an image. Listen, every husband and every wife, listen, must come to the place where they are content with who they have. This is my wife. No one else. This is my husband, no one else. I am not fantasizing and longing and daydreaming about what it would be like if only I was married to her, if, if only he was my husband. That is idolatry. You are a spiritual extortionist when that's your heart. Be content with who you have. And that speaks to your character. This is a heavy text. This is a heavy text. We have to make this point. This is very, very critical. The command is to mortify, not manage. The command is to mortify, not manage. Sound the note on these things, which means you've put it to death. When we try to manage sin, we think we have a plan to keep it under control. Yeah, God, I know this is sin. I know this is wrong. I know this is outside the lines of what you, have, what you have outlined in Scripture. But God, I tell you what, I've got a plan to make sure it doesn't go too far. It doesn't get too far to control. Listen, you have to understand, you cannot control these things in your flesh, which is why God tells you to put them to death. You can't control these things. Your flesh, and this is, this is one of the issues that we have, is, is, is for, for some of us, and, and, and I'm flesh, so I've done this, uh, what we do is this, man, we are great liars to ourselves. I'll only go this far. <laughs> you have no idea. No, you're, you're gonna go that far and much further. sound the note. One of the things that humbles me and frightens me in the same breath is when I come face to face, when God brings me face to face to the mirror of just how weak I am in the flesh. doesn't matter what my intentions are. It doesn't matter how much Bible I know. It doesn't matter that I'm a pastor. None of that matters. My flesh is so weak, And it is so selfish and it is so sinful that it is always angling and looking for, again, just constantly pivoting. Just, okay, you cut me off here. You've killed this. Okay, how about this? It just never stops. And we need to be in agreement with Paul and what he says in Philippians 3, verses 3 and 4. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus And have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. What you tell yourself and what you actually try and do when you try and manage sin versus mortify it, guess what you're doing? You're putting confidence in your flesh. I can manage this. You can't. Sin will always take more than you thought you were going to give. Israel made a deadly mistake in the Old Testament. And it is a mistake that many believers to this day have made and continue to make. We have not learned from their history. Look at Numbers 33, verses 55 and 56. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. In other words, God says when you get into the land, you've got to drive everything out. Don't manage anything, don't don't let anything hang around. You got to drive them all out. Did Israel do that? They did not do that. This is what I'm saying. This is what we do. There are things in our lives. you say, so you know what man that, that, that that's not good, but I tell you what it's not as bad as this over here, so I, I'm going to make space, and you know what? nobody knows about it. I, I I've got this compartment, I've got this closet over here and and I'm managing it, so I'm going to let it dwell, I'm going to let it linger, even though God said, put it to death. No, 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 God, I'll kill some of it. God says, drive it all out. Verse 56, moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. This is what happens when you choose to try and manage something that God has commanded you to put to death. It very well could come back to put you to death. And that's exactly what Paul alluded to next in verse 6. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. This type of behavior invites the wrath of God on the unbeliever. So to think that we can live in these things and not be chastised of the Lord is foolish and shallow thinking at best. But Paul's point was, we once walked and lived in those things, past tense. In other words, these things have no place in our lives now. That's in the rearview mirror. So why are some still walking, and I know some are, and living in these things? We said last week if we fail to get those first four verses that we have no shot at everything that follows, and you're seeing it here. Because if you're not seeking those things above, if your affection is not set on things above, then guess what? Your seeking and your setting is earthly. And when it is, these are the things that you will seek and pursue and give yourself to instead of putting them to death. Paul was far from done because he has another category of sin to address. This is why I believe covetousness in verse 5 has lust in view primarily. Otherwise, Paul would have placed it here in this list, because now the focus shifts from lust to what we see beginning here in verse 8, where he says, "...but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth." lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So in verse 5, we're given five things to put to death. In verse 8, we're told to put, five things, uh, to put off five things, and, and, and a sixth in verse 9. So the second thing is we've got to put off. Put some things to death, and there's some things to put off. Now, why did Paul... Give the command to mortify in verse 5 and then here in verse 8 and verse 9, put off. Well, for starters, he most certainly was not advocating that we need to mortify the things in verse 5, but then manage the things in verses 8 and 9. Far from it. It's obvious that mortification is still in view because of what we read in verse 8. Look at it again. But ye also... In other words, continuing that same theme of mortification. But ye also put off all these. In other words, sound the note on these things too. Kill these things too. So, we are to mortify or put off anger. This is unrighteous passion. We know there is a righteous anger, and there is an unrighteous anger, Ephesians chapter 4. When it is of the unrighteous sort, it is the result of being carnal. This is where we become passionate over things that are simply not warranted. Like, this doesn't warrant me to become unrighteously passionate. If I can expose myself, like, being cut off in traffic or someone being aggressive or rude in a parking lot, or I I, I can get a little edgy when I feel like people are being reckless and I have my family in the car. I get edgy. (laughs) And and, and I want to make a statement that, listen, do you think that wherever you have to go and what you have to do is so important that you're going to put my family's life in danger? Or I want you to know I don't appreciate that. (laughs) Well, guess what? That's not a reason for me to get angry. Our expectations are, were unmet. <sighs> or we begin to boil over a disagreement or a difference of opinion. Wrath. This is passion as if breathing hard. It's very interesting that in verse 6 we saw that the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience Paul told us to put off wrath. That's interesting for this reason. The wrathful person, listen, possesses a God complex. (laughs) So the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And then Paul tells the believer to put off wrath. Wait a minute, you mean you... You can be wrathful like God? If you have a God complex, you can. How dare you do what you did? How dare you not live up to my standard? How dare you? Man, I'm going to destroy you. Malice. This is badness, depravity, or malignity. This speaks to the desire to injure someone. This is not good. This is where a man can become physically abusive to his wife. I like how Harry Einstein put it, he said, we have three generations of sin here, anger cherished begets wrath, and wrath, if not judged, begets malice. Listen, if we don't check our anger, this is where it's going. This is why I am personally alarmed when a man is verbally abusive toward his wife, because I know if he doesn't check that, I know where that train's going. I will tell you very clearly, when the day comes for my precious, beautiful little girl to marry, I will have as stern and clear of a conversation as two men could ever have. Where it will be crystal clear, I am not giving her to you to be abused. And if we ever get to that place, I can promise you with everything in me, You're not going to enjoy having to deal with me on any level whatsoever. I can promise you that. You will not abuse my daughter in any way with your hands or your mouth. If that's your agenda, please keep going. Blasphemy. This is vilification against God in particular. Now, regarding the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost not being forgiven, I do want to uh, take a quick detour here as I'm watching the time. Uh, let me just, and I have these in your notes for you because this is, um, for, for some, this is a very difficult thing, and, and there's a lot of, misunderstanding about this, but as you have here in your notes, I do not believe that that sin can be repeated today for the following reasons. Okay, when you talk about blasphemy of the Holy Ghost, as we read it in the Gospels, where Jesus said that this is the only sin, this is the unpardonable sin, as we often hear it referred to, this is the only sin that can't be forgiven. One, the scribes and the Pharisees witnessed the miraculous works of Jesus that were performed by the Holy Ghost and attributed those works to Satan. So here's Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh during his earthly ministry at his first coming, working the works of God that he was doing through the power of the Holy Ghost. And the scribes and the Pharisees witness it with their own eyes and said, Beelzebub. That's how he's doing that. That's the context. Jesus Christ is not here performing miracles today before our eyes for us to attribute that to Satan. This is why I do not believe that we can replicate that sin right now today. Next, if we can commit this same sin today, why does Paul command us to put it off? If it's the same sin, if it can't be forgiven, it can't be put off. Does this make sense? It can't be the same sin. Why did Paul not tell the churches that this sin is unpardonable? Where do you read this in the epistles where the apostle Paul declares, if you commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, you can't be forgiven that? Where do we find that in the epistles to so the churches? We don't. Next. How could the apostle Paul get saved? If this is the same sin, how could Paul get saved? Look at First Timothy chapter one and verse twelve. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer. A blasphemer. And a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And some will go, well, no, no, no. He was pardoned because he did it in ignorance. That's not the point. The point is, if you're saying this sin can't be forgiven, it doesn't matter if it was in ignorance or not. He was still a blasphemer. You see the point? Five. If we could commit this sin today, then the blood of Jesus only covers everything except that. Right? Jesus paid for all of our sins except that one. It's very important to note when you're dealing with this issue, when Christ made that statement, it was absolutely true at that time in that moment, but understand he had not shed his blood yet which covers all sin. This is why it's so important to study your Bible and be able to rightly divide correctly. If not, this is where people get in trouble. So this cannot be the same blasphemy mentioned by Christ in the Gospels. However, (laughs) uh, we should not be so quick to turn the page and go, okay, what you got next? Because, at times, we're all tempted to be blasphemous toward God, if we're honest. We prayed fervently for baby Juliana, didn't we? How'd that work out? She's no longer with us. I'm not sure I've ever prayed for anybody as hard as I prayed for my brother and dear friend, Mark Trotter. How'd that work out? It actually worked out really, really good. It worked out fantastic, because he's absent from the body and present with the Lord. Um, pardon my grandma, my grammar. Mark ain't hurtin anymore. He's doing quite as a matter of fact, he's doing fabulous, y'all. Ain't and y'all. How about that? On a roll. Paul said, "Put that off. You're tempted to, man, God, what we prayed, we begged you, we asked, what are you? It is amazing, again, it never ceases to amaze me anymore, not just how weak my flesh is, but how wicked it is. My flesh is ready to turn on God on a dime. You let something not work out. You let something be difficult. You you let some hard, harmful thing come to me, my family, someone I love, and all of a sudden, what's your problem? Paul says, put that off. Filthy communication. This is vile conversation. This includes not only profanity, but so much more. As a rule, listen, as a rule, we're always painting a picture with our words. We're always, we're always giving people imagery with our speech. So be careful with your speech. Be very careful with the image that you paint with your words. You want to do all that you can to keep people between the lines when you're speaking. So choose your words very carefully filthy communication. And, and listen, this is, this is interesting because this is, the Lord is setting us up where we're going to be going in the relationship series, and particularly with this area of Scripture right now, tragically, some of these things have landed in some of our marriages, haven't they? God forbid that I would ever stand in my home and communicate Filthy to my wife, or her to me, where we're using filthy words and cussing at each other. And this—I mean, there are believers who live like this. No way. We don't name call. None of this. That's 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 filthy communication. It's filthy speech. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The Bible says. And those that love it will eat the fruit thereof. Proverbs 18, 21. Be careful with your speech. And last but not least, lie not one to another. This is to utter an untruth. I wish this didn't apply to Christians, but Christians lie. Because the flesh is weak. I can tell you that I have been in enough conversations now and situations now where It has not been uncommon, and it is not uncommon for me to be in a situation where I'm sitting down with an individual or individuals, and they don't know what I know. They don't know how much I know. So I've actually got, I have a pretty good handle on the truth but I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and let them have a chance to speak and say their piece and say what they have to say. And what I'm essentially looking for is are they telling the truth? And I can tell you, there have been times where I've sat there and i said, this individual right now is sitting before me lying. They don't know what I know. They don't know how much I know. They're telling me what they want me to hear. They're trying to manipulate and spin the story to their advantage. Lie not one to another, they're lying. Now, as I close, I want you to hear this. If we do not put these things to death and put them off, God will. God will. And I get it. We get to a point where we justify in our minds as to why I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, why I'm going to keep going down this road, why I'm not going to put this to death, why I'm not going to put that off. I've got my reasons. And God says, okay, that's your choice, and now I'm going to make mine. But you are going to put this to death and you're going to put it off one way or the other, but it's going down. Here's what I recommend. What I recommend, starting with me, is we say, yes, Lord, I'll put that to death, and I'll put it off through the power of your Spirit and your Word. Amen? God, thank you so much for your Word this morning. I do pray that we have heard from you and that we will respond correctly. In Jesus' name, amen.